Doctors, data scientists, and hospital executives believe artificial intelligence may help solve what until now have been intractable problems. When it's a child's life on the line, having a backup system that AI could offer is really, really important. But with these new possibilities come new risks, namely the threat of perpetuating racial bias. When you learn from the past, you replicate the past. You further entrench the past. In part one of our special two-part series on racial bias in AI, we met a team at Duke Health that built a computer program to help diagnose kids with sepsis, but was blindsided when they realized all that hard work could delay care for Hispanic children. I was angry with myself because I know that it is easy to put something out there that can cause massive harm. Today, in part two, Duke's efforts to scrub bias from their program and what the Biden administration is doing to push the healthcare world to diagnose and reduce racial bias in AI. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. If you missed part one, go back and listen to that first. It should be right below this episode in your feed. Today, I'm joined by Tradeoffs producer Ryan Levy to talk about the federal government's response to racial bias in healthcare AI. Ryan, how you doing, man? Doing well, Dan. So, so look, before we get going, can you just spell out for us what artificial intelligence is? Sure. So AI broadly means a computer program that's trained to perform tasks normally done by humans. And we're going to be mostly talking about a subset of AI called machine learning, where those computer programs are trained to find patterns in huge amounts of data, like test results or patients' bills. Got it. Great. So you've spent the last several months, right, talking with federal officials, legal experts, data scientists, and hospital folks to get a handle on how they're all trying to keep racial bias from the bedside. What have you learned? Well, there's this telling phrase that keeps coming up, Dan. Wild West. The wild, wild west. It's the wild west. I know you hate a cliche. (laughs) True, true. Uh, But this one feels pretty on the mark. You know, using artificial intelligence to do everything from streamlining billing to helping diagnose cancer is a new frontier. And like the Wild West, there's this lawless feeling to it right now. There are few rules, especially when it comes to preventing developers from baking racial inequity into their algorithms. But but you've been talking with the federal regulators, Ryan, who are hoping to change that. And I'd like to know what these agencies are doing to make it easier to diagnose racial bias in healthcare algorithms. So one of my favorite questions, as you know, who is doing what? Well, there are three agencies tackling different pieces of this puzzle. Three sheriffs, if you will, trying to impose some order in this AI wild west. Dear Lord, Ryan. Okay, fine. I will go along with it. So there are three sheriffs. 
That's right. And each of them is responsible for tackling a different part of the AI bias problem. We've got the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. They regulate the developers who actually make these algorithms, you know, big companies like GE, Medtronic. Then there's the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Brutal name for a very important agency. Absolutely. They go by ONC for short. And their jurisdiction is the electronic health record, which is really integral to how these AI tools operate a lot of times. And finally, we've got the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights, known as OCR. Their job is to make sure that clinicians, health systems, and insurers aren't discriminating against patients. Right. Three regulators, excuse me, sheriffs, <laughs> FDA, ONC, and the Office for Civil Rights. Who should we start with? Uh, I'm going to say FDA. They're the old timers of this group, or at least as much of an old timer as you can have in AI. They approved their first AI-powered device all the way back in 1995. Wow, I, I had no idea that AI had been kicking around in healthcare for that long, Ryan. I thought it was just more of a you know recent tech from this chat GPT era. Yeah, I mean, in its capacity to review and approve medical devices, the FDA has actually greenlit more than 500 AI devices over the past 25 plus years, uh, the vast majority of them in radiology, Dan. And it's the FDA's job to make sure that the algorithms it reviews are safe and effective, just like the agency does for new prescription drugs and other medical devices. Okay. So so what what does that look like, Ryan, when it comes to racial bias? Well, the agency told me that when an algorithm comes to them for review, they take a close look at the data used to build it. And this is where bias can come in. Remember, machine learning algorithms are fed historical data, like test results and diagnoses, and that helps the algorithms predict future outcomes. And because people of color are often underrepresented in those data sets, that can cause problems. So the FDA looks to make sure that the data underpinning an algorithm is diverse enough, and they also ask developers to explain the steps they took to mitigate bias. The agency also says it's working with academic researchers to come up with better ways to deal with this. I don't want to ruin your metaphor, Ryan, but this does not sound very Wild Westy. It sounds like the FDA is pretty focused. Fair point, fair point. But when you talk to the researchers and clinicians working on healthcare AI, they say that the FDA has a lot more work to do. Regulations have always lagged behind technology advances. Minerva Tantoko is the chief AI officer at the New York University McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. And she, along with developers and academics who study this space, say they'd like the FDA to establish public guidelines that really spell out what developers must do to prove that their AI tools are unbiased. By setting the standard, the FDA can signal that this needs to be part of your design. All of the folks who are developing these tools are going as quickly as possible. They're taking the data they can access. But unless the FDA specifically says we are going to test for racial and ethnic bias, they won't necessarily account for that. Minerva and other experts I spoke to told me that they're glad, really glad, that the FDA is stepping up its efforts on bias. 
but they still feel like the FDA is missing stuff right now. And setting this kind of public standard, becoming a stricter sheriff, if you will, would help crack down on the lawless feeling out there. Is there any proof, Ryan, that the FDA is actually missing bias in these tools? Well, several sources told me that hospitals have algorithms up and running right now, today, that did not go through any FDA review, much less one for bias. And as for the tools that are reviewed by the FDA, investigation by Stat News and a study by researchers at Stanford, both in 2021, found that the FDA's approach to looking at race in AI devices was really uneven, sometimes asking for information, but often not. And that really captured the concerns I heard, Dan, you know, around the FDA not having these public requirements for what developers have to do or have to show to prove that their algorithms are unbiased. So while the FDA is taking direct steps, it sounds like there are still these blind spots and a hunger, at least among some, for more regulation, more safeguards to beef up trust in these AI tools. Exactly. So that's the FDA. Let's move on to our second sheriff in the AI bias Wild West, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, or ONC. What part of the AI bias world are they focused on? So ONC is also regulating developers like FDA, but for ONC, it's only when it comes to the electronic health record, where a lot of these clinical algorithms end up. And since just about every hospital and doctor's office in the country uses electronic health records at this point, ONC has jurisdiction over pretty much the whole healthcare system. Absolutely. And their strategy comes down to this. Transparency. 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 That was Catherine Marcassini, Jordan Everson, and Jeff Smith, who are all top officials at ONC and helped draft some new regulations the agency just put out. And ONC is betting that transparency is a first step to rooting out bias. You know, these algorithms are often a black box, Dan, right? They're technically complex and developers fiercely guard their intellectual property, which makes it really hard for hospitals to know whether the AI they're buying is biased. So you know how the FDA, at least sometimes, uh, evaluates the data developers use to build their algorithms? I'm with you. Well, ONC wants to make sure that the end users, hospitals, doctors, nurses, that they also know what that data looks like. So in April, ONC proposed a rule that would require developers to let clinicians see two things. One, what kind of data was used to build an algorithm. And two, what steps the developer took to ensure that the final product was unbiased. Catherine Marcassini at ONC says they think of it like a nutrition label. You know, what are the ingredients used to make the algorithm? Who was represented in the data that was being used? So the demographic type of information, where did that data come from? What type of data set? ONC hopes that making developers share this ingredient list, this nutrition label, will help hospitals and clinicians decide if an algorithm is unbiased enough, really safe enough to use. I love that nutrition label metaphor, Ryan. It helps make ONC's approach really clear. At the same time, it makes me wonder how effective it's going to be, right? Like how many people in a hospital or doctor's office know enough about all this stuff to evaluate whether an algorithm is biased or not? 
So funny you should say that. Uh, Carmel Shahar asked the same thing when I talked with her about this new rule. Carmel studies the regulation of digital health tools at the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School. Transparency is really good and important, but we can't rely solely on transparency because clinicians might look at this and say, "Okay, that's kind of cool and interesting. But again, I'm not a data scientist. So what am I supposed to do here? Carmel says what would be really helpful is having this nutrition label, this ingredient list, out there publicly so that everybody could kick the tires on these algorithms. Everybody like who? I mean, anyone, Dan. You know, data scientists, academics, independent researchers. Carmel says they should all be able to evaluate algorithms and help root out hidden bias. The more people who are keeping an eye out, the more likely it is if there's something problematic, somebody's going to notice something and say something. And ONC told me, Dan, that the agency is open to future regulation that would require developers to share this information publicly. Thanks, Ryan. When we come back, we hear about our last sheriff and learn how Duke tried to keep a last-minute bias out of their new childhood sepsis algorithm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. I'm here with Tradeoffs producer Ryan Levy, who's walking us through how three different federal agencies are trying to make it easier to diagnose and eliminate racial bias in clinical AI tools. All right, Ryan, the sun is going down here on your wild west, which means it's time for our last sheriff to make an appearance, the Office for Civil Rights at HHS. Right. O-C-R. And Dan, they are legitimately a law enforcement agency, by the way. So this whole sheriff thing is a little less far-fetched with them. Good. Good to hear. Anyway, uh, OCR enforces federal healthcare anti-discrimination laws. And OCR director Melanie fontes Rayner told me that those laws actually already cover discrimination by algorithms. We have open investigations in this space right now looking at use of predicted analytics and possible um, violation of federal civil rights laws and discrimination. While these laws, Dan, broadly prohibit healthcare providers from discriminating, there was nothing that explicitly said, you know, it's illegal to use an algorithm to discriminate, period. Uh, So in August 2022, Melanie says OCR proposed a rule that said hospitals, physician practices, and insurers must not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability through the use of clinical algorithms in decision-making. So so that's interesting, Ryan. OCR proposed a regulation to ban something that is already against the law. Like, why get more specific if they already have this broader authority? Well, Melanie says the point is to send a clear and obvious signal to hospitals and doctors that if they use an algorithm that is biased against their patients, they are breaking the law and they are responsible. To make sure that they're aware 
that this isn't just, you know, buy a product off the shelf, close your eyes and use it. It's another tool we have to regulate to make sure that they're not using it in some way that furthers disparities. The other sheriffs we've talked about, Dan, FDA and ONC, they're focused on making sure developers have done everything they can do to rid an algorithm of bias by the time it gets to the hospital. What OCR is saying is providers also have a role to play. So hospitals and clinicians, they have to be prepared to spend the time and money to make sure that biased algorithms aren't getting to the bedside or they could face fines and be forced to make changes. So so what will hospitals actually have to do if this rule is finalized, Ryan? It's a good question, and we don't quite know yet. Uh, Melanie made it very clear that even without this rule, hospitals cannot discriminate using algorithms. That's against the law. But just like with the FDA, Dan, there's little guidance here on what exactly hospitals have to do to stay on the right side of the law. And given the immense investment and expertise required to make sure algorithms are unbiased, Harvard's Carmel Shachar is worried that this OCR rule could have unintended consequences. What we don't want is for the rule to be so scary that physicians say, "Okay, I just won't use any AI in my practice. I just don't want to run the risk. And Dan, Carmel worries in particular about smaller, less resourced hospitals that don't have a team of data scientists like they do at Duke to do this work. Now, Melanie at the Office for Civil Rights, she downplayed this concern. She says her office isn't, you know, knocking on every hospital door looking for biased algorithms. They're really zeroed in on providers with a pattern of discrimination. And she says OCR's goal is to help a hospital stop discriminating without having to issue fines or other penalties. Thanks for summing up how these three regulatory sheriffs, FDA, ONC, and OCR, are trying to bring some more order to this world, Ryan. I'm curious, at the end of the day, did developers and clinicians, the researchers, all these people that you talked with, did they think that these efforts are going to help get rid of bias in healthcare algorithms? It's a little hard to say. You know, on one hand, pretty much everyone I talked with, including the hospitals, want more regulation. You know, they're excited to see the sheriffs in town paying attention to this. But they also say that they need more guidance, clear guidance on how to keep bias out of clinical AI. And importantly, they say they need more money to actually do that. I thought Mark Sendak, who helps develop AI tools for Duke Health and who we heard from in part one of the series, I thought he articulated this concern really well. We're hearing very loud and clear that we have to eliminate bias from algorithms. But I think what we're not hearing is for regulators say, we understand the resources that it takes to identify these things, to monitor for these things, and we're going to make investments to make sure that we address this problem. What Mark's talking about there, Dan, are federal investments. You know, the last really big tech change in healthcare was the implementation of electronic health records. And the federal government spent $35 billion to entice and help providers adopt EHRs. Not one of the regulatory proposals I've seen around algorithms and bias mention anything about incentives or assistance like that. Tradeoffs producer Ryan Levy, thank you as always, sir, for your reporting on this. Anytime, partner. Oh, my. Okay. Off into the sunset he goes. 
At the end of part one, we left Mark Sendak and the team at Duke a bit stunned. It was late 2022, and one of their colleagues had just told them that it often takes an hour or two longer for Hispanic kids at Duke to get checked out for sepsis compared to white kids, delays potentially caused by language barriers or provider bias. Mark realized they had unknowingly baked this delay into the data that he and his team had so scrupulously tried to scrub clean. That would mean that the the kid whose care was delayed would look like they have sepsis two hours later than the kid whose care wasn't delayed. That kind of delay can be deadly with sepsis. Mark was disappointed with himself for missing something that now seems so obvious, like non-English speaking patients getting slower care. But Mark was also grateful for the chance to do something about it. He and his team dug in. They spent another two months trying to make sure their algorithm caught sepsis in Hispanic kids as quickly as all other kids. We did a ton of analysis and we looked at, okay, how would each of these items be represented in the data? How would we test what the impact of each of these is in the potential delays in care? Ultimately, the team determined that the algorithm was not predicting sepsis later for Hispanic patients. Mark says that's likely because Duke treats a relatively small number of kids with sepsis, so there wasn't enough data to tip the algorithm. Mark was relieved, and it cemented in his mind just how easy it is for bias to slip into AI. I don't find it comforting that in one specific rare case, we didn't have to intervene to prevent bias. Every time you become aware of a potential flaw, there's that responsibility of where else is this happening? Research shows Hispanic patients often wait longer for care in the emergency department. Mark says that means algorithms in use right now are diagnosing Hispanic patients for health conditions slower than other patients. And I can't tell you what it is, but I'm sure it's already causing harm to Spanish-speaking families. Duke's pediatric sepsis algorithm is going through its final tests and hospital approvals, on track to switch on this summer. After that, Mark and physician Emily Sterrett hope to share it with other hospitals. The impact of us being able to figure this out and share it with other larger institutions is huge. If this works, it would truly revolutionize the job of a pediatric emergency medicine physician. That potential to better diagnose this tricky condition and save kids' lives, that's why Emily and Mark and so many in healthcare are excited about AI. But to do more good than harm, Mark says, is going to take what often seems in short supply, devotion to addressing this racial bias in algorithms and the broader healthcare system. You have to look in the mirror. It's very introspective and it requires you to ask hard questions of yourself, of the people that you're working with, of the organizations you're a part of. Because if you're actually looking for bias in algorithms, the root cause of a lot of the bias is inequities in care. 
Mark believes developers must work closely with frontline clinicians like Emily. And he sees now he needs to build a more diverse team. Anthropologists and sociologists, patients and community members. Enough different folks to think through how bias could sneak into this groundbreaking work. It's a lot more than any of the proposed regulations would require, but necessary, Mark says, to help make sure these tools leave our biases behind. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Next weekend, many of the country's leading health economists will head to St. Louis, where, over the course of just four days, they'll hear about 637 exciting new research studies. We sneak a peek at a few. Next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Tradeoffs coverage on diagnostic excellence is supported in part by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Special thanks this week to Suresh Balu, Sarah Gurky, Jordan Everson, and Jeff Smith. Additional thanks to Julia Adler Milstein, Brett Bolio Jones, Bennett Borden, David Dorr, Malika Fair, Marzia Gassimi, Maya Hightower, John Halamka, Chris Hemphill, John Jackson, Jen King, Elaine Nsoyasi, Ziad Obermeyer, Michael Pensina, Yolanda Pagetze, Deb Raji, Juan Rojas, Keo Shaw, Mona Siddiqui, Yusef Talha Tamer, Ritwik Tawari, Danny Toby, Alexandra Valladaris, David Vital, Stephen Waldron, Anna Zink, and James Joe. Thanks also to our listeners who helped to support our work, including Frauke Benzin, Dave Spore, and Christine Grow. Our media partner is SideFX Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 